Welcome to Pretty Little Grown Men. We're back again. Yeah, this is our 14th episode. Yeah. We've already passed lucky number 13. Which is a good number to avoid <laughs> in a horror a horror avoid show podcast. Out. Although they haven't really done anything with like numerology or, you know, there's been no sort of superstitions or things like that in the show outside mm-hmm. of maybe some of the Ravenswood stuff. Yeah. Um... Did you see that they're 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 not actually going to have a Halloween episode this year? It's a fan tribute, right? Yeah, it's a fan tribute episode. Um, which you know, I appreciate that because as we talked about before, the chronology does not loan itself to an actual Halloween episode this year. No, we we skip straight ahead to Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which you know seems very strange for the show to do uh and i assume the christmas episode which will be the next episode mm-hmm. uh will clear some of that up yes uh they they've put started put putting uh, some pictures of the liars in their christmas ball gowns on facebook mm. and uh you know the picture is presented it's like look how ravishing the four liars are in the in this year's christmas episode and then all, a lot of the comments are like are like, oh, that's the worst dress for Hannah to wear. How <laughs> dare they pick them out that way? It's just like, no, you can't, you can't please anyone. Um, so I'm, I'm sure the other half of the comments are, I think Arya's a. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we should really quickly uh, get through our half-assed recap of um, Dancing with the Stars, which of course uh, we did not watch this week once again. Um, Which means Janelle did excellent. Yeah. Uh, The two highlights that I uh, read about briefly, one is that Betsy was kicked off this week. Um, Betsy Johnson. Betsy Johnson. The dressmaker. And the second bit of news is that America fell in love again with Alfonso Ribeiro because he did the Carlton dance in the midst of his uh, uh, routine, I guess you'd call it. Hmm. which I saw a really brief snippet of, and it was definitely the Carlton dance. And he had that, you know, that like big goofy look on his face the whole time. Um, but besides that, uh, I don't really think much else happened. Uh, apparently, Janelle made people cry. I think it was because it was a mushy episode. Uh, I guess the theme was like your my favorite year, and so probably uh, like I was telling you before, Dave, the some some year of emotional significance for each of the dancers. And uh, so, that's a really good song by Destroyer really? <laughs> on the album Trouble and Dreams. It's probably my favorite song on that record. My favorite year, yeah, oh. super good song. Kind of shoot, kind of shoot, <laughs> I don't know. That would be an interesting person to have on any of these imagine destroyer being like a, a mentor on the voice you know? <laughs> dan just going on the bit like well i think in your lyrics you should try this you know he's a better singer than CeeLo. i don't yeah that's true um although i don't think CeeLo's on the voice anymore because of his uh twitter rape comments well he was gonna i think he's no longer on reality tv because mm. of that and his show got canceled um, but I think he had left The Voice because he wanted to go do his own reality show. Oh, it was going to be like the CeeLo Green show? He had it. It was on for a season. Oh. Um, apparently, like I talked to a few people who said it was really funny and weird and worth watching. Um, but now it is very canceled. Wait, so like, they're just following him and his family around? 
I think so. Just like typical reality show. Oh. Did you ever watch the T.I. show? No. T.I. and his enormous family. No, I didn't. And his like mutant wife, Tiny, <laughs> who's had so much plastic surgery, she does not look like a human being. She looks like uh, Lil' Kim looks now, mm. which is like some sort of extraterrestrial being who right. has like stumbled to Earth. Um, speaking of... Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like a lead-in. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, Dave and I watched Under the Skin this week, um, which we both really liked quite a bit. Uh, so much so that I went out and bought the book, which is absolutely nothing like the uh, like the movie. Um, the I don't, basic I don't know how anything same. could be like the movie. It's so nuts and so visually, you know, it's so visual, I should say. The whole thing really is told to you in these images. So to have a book attempting to sort of describe those things, you know, I mean, didn't, wasn't 2001, Kubrick's 2001 is from the um, Arthur C. Clarke book. Mm -hmm. um, but of course the movie goes in a different direction. Right. Um, and we don't even think of, you know, people talk about the movie and you don't remember that, oh yeah, there's a book and it actually was part of a series that Arthur C. Clarke did. Right. Um, and under the skin is a is it's it's a purely cinematic piece. The I mean the the story is uh, ridiculously simple, which is that there is some sort of alien entity. Um, you assume it's an alien entity because uh, there isn't there like one shot of possibly like l like spaceships. Flying away, kind of in the in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. I, you know, the beginning images were so weird to me that I didn't really take them as like any kind of literal thing. Mm -hmm. I was just like, "This is really crazy. That's an eyeball. What's going on?" Yeah, you know, it's that's what kind of what I love about a movie like that is, you know, by the end of it, you're you're very much accustomed to this visual language that it's established. But in the beginning, you're so. Um, you feel so out of place that you're just sort of grasping for like what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the symbolism in the in the movie is pretty intuitive. Um, and I think what I was telling you the other day was I uh, uh, recently started watching some Jodorowsky. Um, well, I've only seen his first movie, El Topo, and. Uh, and the, the next one he did, which was I think the something about a pyramid, holy holy mountain, the holy mountain. That was the big influence on um, this Kanye tour and on his last album. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that ma that makes sense. And holy mountain is supposed to be like twice as bonkers as the first one, but you know the I enjoyed El Topo on a very visceral level, which because it is just it's it's weird. It's doesn't it doesn't really have a, a very strong linear narrative. Um, it's very symbolic. And oftentimes you kind of just grasp at what's going on. It's much like watching a David Lynch movie. And so my my first reaction is to basically like get up and then go and read a piece about someone interpreting the movie. Right. In order to some like grasp at what might have been the intention. Um, and sometimes you want like I think that you want this, but you also don't want this, which is you want the director to say like, well, this is what I meant. This is what this is what I was intending to get at. 
this is kind of what I was what I was hoping that you would take from this. But at the same time, then what's the point of making a piece of art if you're not going to com- connect with it emotionally? And so you watch this Jodorowsky movie, and you're like, what the fuck's going on? Um, and then, uh, of course, Jodorowsky doesn't really lend much... Uh, much um, explanation to what he was intending, probably because he was A, high as fuck, and B, uh, didn't really have much of a point to uh-huh. it, you know? Um, which which I think under the skin is, to me, it was very clear in its sort of moral or thematic goals. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't want to get too, I don't want to spoil it for someone who hasn't seen it, Um but essentially, we see this alien character, Scarlett Johansson's character, go through and repeatedly pick off lonely men from the street or wherever mm-hmm. she can find them uh, and seduce them in this very sort of abstract, figurative image, which may or may not be what's literally happening to these men once they come back to her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, without giving away the end too much, um, there is a flip of that, and we see her very much going through some of the exact imagery of these dark doorways uh, and being asked questions and having certain things that has been her methodology happen back to her. And so my takeaway from it was very much that like it's a movie about not about so much an alien invasion, but you know science fiction is always very metaphorical and always commenting on our the current age. Uh, and in this case, I think it's just commenting on man's inhumanity to man and the way we treat lonely people and the way people take advantage of other people. And by the end of the movie, as you see Scarlett Johansson become more and more human, perhaps, uh, I think we see her then become vulnerable to these these sort of horrible day-to-day realities mm-hmm. of the human experience. It's you know it, it's it's very much a movie about trying to see humanity through inhuman eyes because a lot of the the gaze of the camera throughout the movie is through her eyes as she just observes human behavior there are are long periods of time where she's driving around in this van and just watching people do basic people things um, which is kind of fascinating the way that it's portrayed is just like people on a bench and people like picking their nose and people just walking down the street, people gathering after uh, a football game, you know, uh, and the, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see if it's possible as a filmmaker to remove yourself that much from the basic human condition enough to observe it. Which is essentially what, isn't that what all art tries to do, is tries to observe human behavior in such a way to, to bring certain things to light, maybe? Right, I mean, and, and to translate, or to transmute the, the mundane and the everyday to the level of art, mm-hmm. you know? And I think this film absolutely does that. I think it's just, it's so beautifully shot, and it's such a slow-moving and repetitive film. And, you know, she kind of goes through this cycle of um, going after men again and again. And you're like, man, how long is this going to happen? And I thought it did such a good job of sort of 
slowly revealing to you just a little bit more information about why or what she was actually doing. Mm -hmm. And she starts to change slowly but surely and has different kinds of encounters. And so I was watching it just saying, okay, I'm just going to wait for this movie to tell me what it needs to tell me. Um, and it, and it, that's all it does. Are very, very basic things in order to get you from one point to another. It doesn't explain much, and I don't think that it has to. No, I think certainly like the mythology of the movie exists if you want to talk about it or, or dig into it, but it also, I think is very much presented as like, here is a framework for this to work as a plot, but it's not actually really the point of, mm -hmm. the, of us telling you the story. The point is for you to take away this this particular feeling. You know, and that's kind of, um, and I think that I, I read an interview <clears throat> with the director, Jonathan Glazer, and, and people were asking him about certain images. Um, and one thing he said was, he didn't really have an answer. It, he sort of, his his answer was mostly like, I never went to film school. I'm just a student of film. I just watch a lot of films. All of the symbolism in any of his movies, and he also directed Sexy Beast and Birth. I haven't seen Birth, but Sexy Beast is a great movie. Um, and Sexy Beast has some really odd moments uh -huh. um, that don't seem to make much sense. But I think the answer to that is essentially, they don't have to make sense. Because... As long as you can somehow, and the same with the Jodorowsky, the same with David Lynch for sure, um, and I, I'm not a huge David Lynch fan, but I don't think you can really, I don't think that you can really literally watch a David Lynch movie unless it's like Straight Story or Elephant Man and like bring out of it some sort of like very specific things that he's trying to tell you. And I don't think any of these directors want you to do that. They just want you to somehow, on some subconscious level, connect to purely visual images in an emotional way and not have to put some sort of really uh, um, concrete meaning behind it. Right. Um, which is really hard for us as, as, as consumers of pop culture to digest because we have to have a, a meaning behind everything. Right. That, well, like, I thought Under the Skin was much more, you know, straightforward, and it has a climax, and everything about Scarlett Johansson essentially is revealed. Mm -hmm. You know, it it answers the title of the movie, which is like as high concept a thing as a movie in art film could be can be is to you know answer its own title. Um, but I thought I thought it was so much more clear and uh, purposeful than. A David Lynch movie, mm -hmm. like you know Mulholland Drive, for example, which Drive, you know, or Inland Empire, <laughs> sure, where a lot of things happen in that movie that probably don't actually have sort of, you know, if the plot is a is a is if the narrative is an arc, right? Those are just there's it, all these little sticks popping out mm -hmm. where it's like this broken arc that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think you know you see that in Twin Peaks, and you see that in. I'm sure other, you know, directors who we could mention, but I thought this movie outside of the opening sequence, which is very like confusing and not, not very, you know, it's purposely just showing you imagery and overwhelming you, mm -hmm. you know, once you get into her doing what she does, um, you know, it's parts of it are figurative and aren't like showing you the transfer of organic matter to another star or whatever, yeah. you know, in an exact way. 
Um, but I thought it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Much more so than some of the reviews I read uh, made it sound like. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of, I think that's what I'm getting at, which is, you know, I, so after I watched the Jodorowsky movie, I read a review by Roger Ebert, um, and he, one of his, like, you know, I think he has these, like, basic rules of filmmaking. Um, Ebert does. Yeah, and okay. one, of, one, of, one of his rules is if you don't, if you don't get the symbol, it's like if you don't get the symbol, then it, then it probably hasn't been filmed well. Uh-huh. Like, it's like the director's fault. Uh-huh. Um, like the cat in um, Lewin Davis. I've never seen Lewin Davis. Oh. Well, so there's this whole subplot where the, the title character or the inside Lewin Davis is following around this cat where he's lost this cat mm-hmm. and he has to go find it again or whatever. Um, and so the cat feels like this big, obvious symbol for something he's doing or not doing in his life, but then it really just is not. It's just like this big sort of throwaway gag that doesn't necessarily correlate with um, his career or whatever. Yeah. And I, a lot of people wrote about that as at the time as being like, what a wonderful thing for the Coen brothers to do is throw this wrench into like your sort of English major film school reading of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought the film had other bigger problems than that, you know, than trying to thwart critics. Um, <laughs> but I did enjoy having having a cat be in it kind of just to be this sort of silly side quest, essentially. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's, and I, I think that, um, I, I have much more emotional connections to, I mean, I like a good story like anybody. I mean, why, why else do we have a podcast about Pretty Little Liars, which is just like pure story, all plot. Um, but I've, I think I'm most, my favorite directors, my favorite movies, the the movies and the films, the TV shows that I've had the most emotional connection to are these very vague, um, nebulous series of images that just almost seem to touch on something that I can't really explain. And then if I try to explain, I end up either sounding stupid or I don't want to, or it sort of like neuters the emotional connection uh-huh. i mean i recently watched this movie called a field in england uh by ben wheatley who is now directing doctor who episodes hmm. um it's a very odd strange movie uh implies that the characters are on are, are on like a mushroom trip or something um there's a lot of explanations that can be that surround it but there are these very indelibly I don't know impactful images that uh-huh. that just like shook me where I don't even really know why it was the the sound the the, the pace of the scene something I don't I don't even really want to explain it besides I just like was just like I think I like told my friend Sarah I was just like there is this thing there's the scene like find this on YouTube and like you'll want to watch this movie and like I just I can't explain it. There's like a guy in a leash and he's coming slow motion out of a teepee. And like there's, <laughs> there's, and you just, you had there's a like Rose playing or something. You had a deep emotional reaction mm-hmm. to that, to that, what you saw. And, but I guess what, you know, what's so strange is that why is this such a, a, a thing that people don't 
want to engage with? Why are people so afraid? Why why are these movies so like why are they art movies? Why right, as opposed to just movies. Yeah, like why are people so afraid to engage in things that they don't necessarily understand? I almost feel like it's to be you just want to like shake people and be like, it's okay, you don't have to understand this. It doesn't it doesn't matter if you understand this. Is like how does it make you feel? Right. Well and I think And is it that simple, I guess? I don't know. You know, it's it's funny because I think that when you start talking about film, people have sort of these very, you know, it's like people who only listen to, you know, one kind of music, you know. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of sort of sense that this kind of movie goes in this box and this kind goes over here and blah, blah, blah. Like you might be a person who's really into action movies or um, comedies or whatever. And, you know, I think we see time and again, you know, in Oscar season, the people who vote on the Oscars are very interested in like serious historical dramas, mm-hmm. which in a set, which essentially are saying movies are showing you real life. They're showing you these things that happened that mattered. Therefore, these movies matter, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying Paul Rudd gave just an unbelievably relatable performance in This Is Forty, and we should nominate him for Best Actor. Mm-hmm. You know, and. It's they'll only give you the they'll only support the sci-fi film or the comedy film or whatever when it's something like The Artist, which was like in homage to old Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm, it's fine to get awards. It's a very well-made film. But it's like, why not a Judd Apatow movie? Or you know, why not a you know? I remember when The Matrix was nominated for like three Oscars, and it ended up being one of the bigger winners of the year but it was only nominated in like technical categories Mm -hmm. and it's like you know i'm someone who goes to see every marvel superhero movie and i love summer blockbusters and some of them can be dumb Mm -hmm. and and annoying and and thin but at the same time you know a movie like guardians of the galaxy or a movie like you know even um dawn of the planet of the apes it's like if you don't enjoy that kind of movie what's even the point Mm -hmm. you know it's like it's creating things on the screen that you've never seen before. And that to me is really the magic of filmmaking is not showing you a reflection of yourself or a picture of history. It's showing you your, the imagination. Those are the kinds of movies that I really enjoy. You really like this 40 because Ryan Adams is in it. I, you know, that was a nice (laughs) treat that, that my, my, uh, my, my dude Ryan Adams is in that movie. No, I like that movie because I'm a married person and even though I'm younger than the characters, it's mm-hmm. essentially a movie about being married and being a grown-up and trying to pursue your dreams at the same time as having these other responsibilities. And I thought it was just super fucking funny mm-hmm. and a great movie. And, you know, I saw it a second time and thought, yeah, this is a really great movie. This is as good as any movie Apatow's ever done. And all the criticisms of it were like, well, it's about rich people or the characters are so annoying and shrill or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this is how people are like in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not these like perfect characters who only have one annoying trait. It's like, these are people living their lives. And it felt way realer to me than any like sad Academy Awards drama about dour white people in a country house in Maine, you know, (laughs) going through some horrible divorce because like, that just isn't how life is. Like there are jokes in your life and you try to deal with it and roll the punches. And so to me, this is 40 felt like a much more, you know, reflective portrayal of what real life is like versus these like 
super fucking intensely sad movies that are always just like, oh, Oscar movie, something really horrible happens. Right. You know? But, I mean, those movies, again, are, are very, like, plot-driven and literal. And why do we prize that kind of movie in general, you know, over something that, excuse me, isn't so linear? Well... that's a, I think that's a great question as well. I think that, you know, and this is... So, I... Um, to give a little bit of background, um, without being too explicit, I used to work at a company that uh, dealt in the film industry sort of on the side and um, one of the and up until that point not being familiar with the film industry I was unaware that uh, there is this sort of hype surrounding the idea of story almost the word story where people don't want to admit that anything it is anything but a story and it's really fucking annoying and it's uh stupid and uh um and there was of course a viral video about this artist who is like you know you're 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 this roller coaster you've designed is not a fucking story like stop calling these things stories you're not a fucking storyteller i think that's actually like the quote was you're not a fucking storyteller uh -huh. um and I totally agree with it, and and working at this company had a lot of bullshit qualities like that, um, which is perhaps the first time that I've publicly said that. Um, but the, the thing about story that uh, was relentlessly nailed into my head is that it's a very biological quality, that the few, the, you know, the few basic chemicals in our brain that correspond to community and then happiness or depression all like they they directly correlate to story story is a an essentially human thing to do you know it's something right. that's been a part of of what we do for a really long time and i i think well no go ahead and and, and so so even down to uh religions myths how we how we explain the world. Sure, I mean the the Joseph Campbell idea right. that everything boils down idea. to these sort of very central, uh, you know, the central story of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think everyone, you know, everyone sees themselves. I think a lot of the issues we have as human beings interacting with each other is that everyone sees themselves as the hero of their own movie, mm -hmm. not recognizing that so does everybody else. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to get along if you recognize you're in a full cast of characters. Right. Storytelling, you know, it's funny because storytelling is supposed to be a communal thing and it's how we've, we've communicated, uh, for centuries. Um, but it is at its core a very uh, self-absorbed thing because it's basically saying that this story that you are telling is 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 the focus is the most important thing, sure. and and everyone should listen to this. And it doesn't allow necessarily for interpretation or for more you know visceral or emotionally based reactions, which you can create through music or through image or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm someone who. Uh, in my music criticism, you know, I generally don't focus on the lyrics. I'm I'm much more interested in the quality of the performance. I'm interested in the in the studio work that was done. You know, the tone of the guitars, mm -hmm. the way everything is layered together, the the complete sort of uh, 
sonic picture that you get, and that's way more interesting to me than, you know, someone singing for the 5,000th time about a relationship. Right. You know, I don't tend to notice lyrics unless they're really great or really bad, mm-hmm. or unless somehow, you know, for instance, on the new Mr. Twin Sister album, there's a very clear story arc that develops from song to song, and if you're listening closely, you realize, oh, this builds on the last track, and these are hooked together. And that's and that becomes really exciting, but I didn't catch that until having listened to the album for purely sonic reasons. That's a really funny a thing, the, as, as, as a totally unrelated note, but I read something today uh, on the Talk House, which is uh, a, a site where musicians basically write about other... It's like basically musicians reviewing albums, kind of. And so they that's had, a great site. They had uh, Caroline Polachek... Uh, the lead singer of Cheerlift. Yes, she was writing about Mr. Twin Sister because, oh. as a as a fan of them before, and she explicitly said, "I don't, I, 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 I'm looking for a narrative and I can't find it." That's and, so funny. Which is funny so, because we had just talked about man, that. Man, that's so funny because you know I had read. I'm writing a review of it because I wanna. I was going to review it for uh, for the the Oregonian. Uh, the newspaper that I write for, uh, and I thought, well, actually, I'll hold this and I'll wait until the end of the year in December because it's probably going to be either my favorite or you know certainly a top five favorite album of the year for me. So I want to wait and write a little bit more about it then. Mm-hmm. But you know, to me, there's a very clear narrative from you know I think there's about seven tracks in the album, and I need to inspect the lyrics of the first and the last track some more. But the middle chunk of the of the album is a woman going out to the bar, turning a guy down, um, and then having some more drinks and kind of changing her her views on the evening um, and becoming more flirty and open to whatever may happen. And then she sort of has some more drinks and gets into this like level of self-discovery where she feels a completely different way. And then you get out to this very skeletal uh, house track basically, where you, things have gone bad and she's had too much to drink and she's sort of in this darker darker zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get this very nice ballad to conclude things, which, I need, like, again, I need to take a look at those lyrics to see how they tie in. But to me, that it's very much a journey of like going out. It's one night at the club. It's a journey of self-discovery and of you know uh, becoming drunk and how that changes a person. Mm-hmm. And it's there are lines in every song that I think build on the previous song. So it it's there. It exists. Oh man, you should you should tell her. Well she was, she you know, was, I'll, she was I'll, quite forthright <laughs> about it. That's that's interesting. <laughs> I'll have to read that piece. Um but yeah, I read a couple of other reviews of the album and I was surprised that nobody had caught it because mm. just listening to it, you know, there's lyrics in each song where she discusses how she's feeling and then in the next song she says something different. She says, Oh now I feel like this and it's like okay like in song two someone's trying to buy her a drink which she doesn't want and then in song three she says sure i'll have three or four mm-hmm. so it's like the it's all there it's yeah. on it's on the page well you know what i think that maybe no one sees it because no one's looking for it and right um that that's more a statement of how we consume music nowadays and i i think you know especially with the release and it's, it's not something that the band talked about Either. No, like in the interviews leading up to it, it said, "Well, we want to talk about all these different things. We have all these different songwriters, so you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But um, 
you know, maybe I'm looking too much for the hero's journey in the album. But to me, it's it's pretty clear, and the music seems to tie into the into it as well. Uh, it really it feels like the soundtrack to a night at a club evolving. Well, you know, and that's I, I don't think that there's anything wrong in looking for it, whether or not it's actually there. It's there for you, sure. And so, which means so it is there. But I also think that yeah, exactly. So it is. But I also think that like, you know. With the with the release of the latest Fly and Lotus album, which now people are talking about, oh the the uh, the album as object again, where you have a, a full, I think it's like thirty something minutes of music that is all cohesive, that's all tied together. Sure. Um, and that oh, it's just like you know people talk about it like it's some rare thing nowadays, and maybe to a certain extent it is, but um, I think it's. It's sad that we have this entity, which is a, an album of music, that is now no longer expected to be a cohesive thing. Sure. You know, whereas I would I would hope that every artist that we love that is making an album to release has that thought in mind, where it's like these are these these ten songs or whatever should be should be cohesive because they belong together on this album. Otherwise, I'll just release them as singles, you know? Just right. Like, why, why, why even put why, them together? Yeah, why put it together without having sort of a thematic or a, you know, an artistic purpose to do so as opposed to here's whatever I did in the last six months, let's dump it out. And it can't just Which be, happens all the time, too. Right, and I'm sure that a lot of it's contractual, you know, but still, it's not like you can't change the paradigm of what... what label contracts are to service an artist who is a singles artist. Well, know? and I think the the flip side of that is you have a lot of major label musicians who would call themselves quote-unquote recording artists <laughs> uh, to elevate this thing they do of making disposable pop music that nine people had have writing credits on. Uh, and that's fine, yeah. you know, but those are the people who will often say, you know, I wanted to get my album just right and I threw out all these songs and blah, blah, blah. And then you listen to it and it doesn't have any flow. There's yeah. garbage tracks. You know, the singles are the best songs. And it's like, where's your taste? Yeah. Like, how did you not hear this as like a bunch of junk or like a poorly organized thing, you know, compared to what we think of as sort of the barometers of like, a good album, you know, whether yeah. it's some classic rock thing or a Sade album or, yeah. you know, something that you can listen straight through and it takes you on a journey or it has some sense of, you know, connection mm -hmm. or, or even of, of story arc, even if that arc is more felt than, uh, done in the lyrics. Well, it seems like, and that's, and that's maybe what it all comes down to is because I was just about to say something and I, I, maybe this is wrong, but you know, why are we why are we looking for stories and everything but music? We don't seem to really look for stories in music, but now we look for them. I disagree. Well, now we look for them in individual songs, and I'm talking about us as in everyone. You know, I I disagree. I think uh, culture writing has become fixated on narrative, and you will now see most things you know artists discussed in like where does this fall in a feminist context. Or where does this fall in a political context? Or where does it fall in the history of hip-hop? And there's so much attention on that, on the story and the context and everything outside of um, the music itself that there's so little attention paid to, like, is it catchy? Like, mm -hmm. 
is is the guitar sound nice? You know, is the aesthetic elements of the of the music are like the last thing on on a critic's mind a lot of the time? And I think in part it's because it's just it's so expected that okay, this person is a competent musician. What would be what's more interesting? Right. You know, and maybe the maybe the critic in question doesn't have the tools to talk about those elements. You know, I certainly don't know music theory. I can recognize a major chord when I hear it. But mm-hmm. I think readers are more interested in these broader or more, you know, controversial takes and writers pursue those takes versus sort of inspecting the art itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the critic, um, the the editor of RogerEbert.com, and he's also the um, TV critic for New York Magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Matthew uh, Zeitz, I think his name is. Like Zoller Zeitz, Stoller Zeitz, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really, no, no, I really I should, I really should remember. He his recently name. wrote a book about Wes Anderson. Yeah, contributed to a book, and he's a he's a wonderful critic and writer. One of my one of my favorites for sure. And he wrote an essay a while ago saying, "Please, TV writers, write about technique. Like you're doing these recaps or you're writing these reviews. Like, tell me about you know, it's is it a wide shot? Is there panning? Is are there like color choices made? Like what was done? What?" tools of the cinema mm-hmm. were done to make you feel something or to tell the story. Don't just talk about like the the line of dialogue. Well, the, that the thing in that the line in the script. Exactly. And that's kind of like you know, when we focus on story, whether whether it be to take a piece of music and place it within a context that helps us that helps us understand it amongst the deluge of all the music that's out there, it's like it's a lot easier to digest um, a a new Flying Lotus album if we have someone saying this is where it falls in the context of jazz fusion, like that 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 story. This right. is this is its part in the story, and so then then we're like, oh, okay, I feel more like it's approachable, you know, instead of just saying like here here's what it is and here's what it does on its own merits. And the same thing with with cinema, which is. It's we're, we're trying so hard to just accept a movie as a story that we're totally devaluing the art itself, which doesn't need the the disguise of story to give you emotional images that you can connect with on an unexplainable level. Right. I mean, on a very visceral human level. I mean, I think they both meet in the middle to create you know, a really great film or a really right, great song. Right, right, yeah. You know, I mean, um, a Bob Dylan song works because, you know, obviously there are wonderful covers of Bob Dylan songs, but, you know, his songs work because it's him singing it to you and he has such a presence and he's playing it on this, you know, on this crappy little guitar and you're getting mm-hmm. like, you know, if you listen to his first record or something and it takes you to a time and a place and gives you this very specific feeling. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take that song and you do the 2014 pop artist cover of it, it doesn't give you that feeling because it loses all of the qualities of that recording that gave it its visceral energy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, it's, I guess what we're really trying to say is we really like to under the skin. 
Yes, yeah, <laughs> amazing movie. You should you should definitely see it and and be patient with it and don't expect it to be Attack the Block or Independence Day or Alien or whatever. Um, but I thought you know I I love I think we both love science fiction movies. Yeah, and you know I love anything that's imaginative and and pushes beyond what we have in front of us. You know, and can tell stories of that are more fantastical and. I thought this movie did such an amazing job of like telling this emotional story and bringing like a very artistic sensibility to a science fiction film. And we don't see enough of that. Do you think, um, do you think that this movie would have been the same movie without Scarlett Johansson? And by when I say without Scarlett Johansson, I mean with someone a human being just as beautiful, but not with the same star profile as her. Right. You know, I think it was really smart to cast her because the entire rest of the movie is unknowns. Mm-hmm. And I think in some cases, real people, right, who are filmed with hidden cameras. Uh, the guy the, the guy who was... Uh, he had the... Um, I don't remember what the what it's called. It's, it's a condition that makes... That he, had, he was physically deformed. He had... Uh-huh. Um, uh, he was. Uh, he's a. He's a, like, just a. I think just a. A normal person. A, a, a non actor. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think, I think one, it's important to have someone like her because it gives you sort of immediate emotional stakes in it. Mm-hmm. Because she's going off and doing basically what appear to be terrible criminal things, mm-hmm. and you need some level of sympathy to stay engaged. And it's also a very slow movie. Yeah. So I think having her in it really does make the movie because you have this context you have this you come into it having context for her and having the sort of outside narrative of enjoying her as an actor and recognizing her mm-hmm. that you're like well I'll stick around and see what happens yeah. if you would just cast some unknown uh I don't think you would what are the stakes for you mm-hmm. you know you're following this movie and you're like this person is this evil alien and I don't like this and this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I think it would completely change the character in the movie. Um, and I think that is an argument for a level of... This, we bring a certain level of story and of narrative expectation yeah, to true. it mm-hmm. because we know who Scarlett Johansson is. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and... Um, I was thinking, too, about... And I would say that we would both agree that she gives a really fantastic performance... Um, and well, what's funny to me about that is she says very little in this movie. It's a very quiet mm-hmm. film, um, and it's almost the complete opposite of her role in her, where yeah. she doesn't appear, and it's a completely vocal performance. Yeah. And so you don't have the benefit of seeing her, but she's such a good actor that her that performance in that movie is just completely captivating. Well, that's what's so funny is, you know, I've never I've never disliked Scarlett Johansson, but I've never considered her an incredibly emotive actor. Sure. You know, she uh, she has that very um, almost uh, aloof look down as far as, you know, her repertoire of of looks. And in fact, the her vocal performance in her is probably the most animated that I've experienced her in a long time. Right. Especially because she's, you know, her vocal performance in that movie is fantastic. But um, her performance in Under the Skin is right up the alley as far as, right up her alley as far as she 
speaks speaks volumes with very little facial movement, which is, I think, you know, which could some people could consider to be relatively easy, but I don't think it is at all. To just, no, I don't think so. You know, and especially the way that she sort of, she has a very, very uh, insectile qualities to her in this movie. I mean, I thought she was really sexy, but almost in kind of a disturbing uh it's like a. Well, just keeps. I keep thinking of the word insectile. Like. Well, it's like a you know, and she happens to play the the character of the Black Widow in the in the Marvel movies. But mm-hmm. you know, like a Black Widow, the female eats the male, mm-hmm. and that's sort of uh, what's almost what's happening in this movie. She's yeah. luring them back to her into her web, essentially to do whatever unclear sci- sci-fi action is happening. Yeah. You know, maybe I wouldn't even say insectile, because what I'm thinking of specifically in my mind, and this is past, the the times that she does talk and have conversations in the movie, she's very animated. The way that she, like, flips on and off is, right. is kind of amazing, but uh, when she's watching people from inside the car and her eyes are darting around and her head is, like, is it's, uh, like, very stark movements. It almost reminds me of a bird, uh-huh. almost like a, like a hawk or, like, some sort of, a, like, a, a bird of prey. Yeah. Bird of prey, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's it's kind of amazing, and it's a very it's a very minimal movie, and it's a very minimal performance. Um, it kind of you know the movie kind of reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Aronofsky's movies, mm. uh, particularly um, the Tree of Life. Is that or the not, Fountain or the Fountain? That's yeah. the one, um, which has all these different images and kind of goes back and forth between historical eras and mm-hmm. you know it sort of makes sense sort of doesn't it's kind of a messy movie mm-hmm. but this movie seemed so much more it had that kind of visual uh vocabulary but was also like way more judiciously edited and focused mm-hmm. and his movies i thought um the wrestler and and Black Swan were excellent because they sort of stepped back from him being so sort of visually weird for its own sake and did focus on okay let's focus on these characters and let's focus on their journey instead of just like me showing you a bunch of things because I can mm-hmm. you know and that's definitely like an element too where you can have all these things you know I think there's a lot of things in David Lynch movies where it's just like well let me just show you this because. I can, and it doesn't have, it's not a piece of the puzzle. It's just kind of a thing. And it's like, well, is it because, is that, is it indulgent then? Or is it like a purposeful thing to have stuff that you don't understand that doesn't fit the movie? Yeah, you know, I think that, and and I'm, I'm a big Aronofsky fan. I was, I was obsessed with him when I was, uh, probably like in high school and college, um, like I used to just—I've probably seen *Requiem for a Dream*. Uh, I don't know, like ten times. Oh man, I also just found that movie to be grotesque. Oh, it, it, oh, it can be grotesque, but I think that like I think that now I don't—I have no desire to ever watch it again. It's been probably six, seven years since I've seen it, um, and I really liked *The Fountain* a lot, and I enjoyed *The Wrestler* and *Black Swan*. For different reasons, and I used to love uh, Pi because I think that like that maybe Aronofsky is a perfect example of someone who maybe goes in in the opposite direction from what we were talking about, where he wants. It's almost like he doesn't. He's not really concerned with story at all, and he kind of is almost like bugged to buy story. 
And so, at least when it comes to the fountain in Requiem for Dream, right. I'd much rather it be visually assaulting, right? Uh, as opposed to be a character study, because the character study, the character is all right there as soon as you see the person. Like whether it's Jared uh, Leto's, like you know, spasmo um, sort of innocent heroin addict, like you just know from the beginning that he's doomed. Uh, Ellen Burstyn's old old lady like she's you know she's all nervous and and doting and you know that you know what's going to happen to her and it's the same in the fountain um where it's just like it's almost like he he wants he wants he wants the visuals to be the characters as opposed to the actual characters in the right. story right. um and so he's probably a, a case study in going too far in the opposite way and maybe that's what and i think that's what you're right about about under the skin is it it's it's odd. It's minimal. It's um, it's slow. It's stark, but it feels so well balanced. It's just it just feels like a really uh, I hate to use the word perfect, but a very perfectly put together movie. No, I agree. I I thought it was just an extremely cleanly edited movie. It doesn't give you any extra information. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't show you things that you don't need to see. I mean, the one sort of thing that could be seen as extraneous is the the motorcycle gang and this guy who seems to be her sort of uh, her ward, her handler. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that feels. I think that actually works with sort of the thematic reading of it because I think he could be seen as you know ultimately controlling her you know it's not her fault that she's doing these horrible things right to people that someone has set her on that path mm-hmm. you know and i think you and she could, tries to escape it right and i think you could read that back into well you know people do terrible things because you know maybe they were abused as a child or whatever it is so i i think there's like a very strong metaphorical component to that and also the dynamic of male and female and having her basically sort of beholden to this male force it's yeah. not another woman alien who's telling her what to do you know well so, the, and I, I think that speaks to sort of the events at the end of the movie which i don't want to i don't want to go into. right and i think that there is um i mean there's there's some ways to interpret it as uh the alien is it and it and in becoming human explores the idea of gender, especially, you know, and a, a little bit of a spoiler, but when she finally has actual real sex, sure. She's, she basically is like flabbergasted by her vagina. Right. Remember that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, you know, it's a funny scene. It's, it's really odd. Actually, if you think about it like that, about this idea of like the male, dominating force uh and her subjugation um if you read it like using sort of like a a gender reading um it's almost like by by becoming human they those those roles are automatically set up you know right um which is interesting it's like as alien entities there wasn't that gender dynamic but once they become human and take human form then the woman becomes subjugated to the the male right you know right and uh, that's yeah, an interesting and, way of looking at and it. we we and then we see that play out and it's not until she sort of becomes a little more self-aware and starts taking on human characteristics 
and seeing herself in a human way that she's then put into this position. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a scene where she's in her van and she's being attacked by a gang and she just kind of looks around and is like, oh, I don't know how to deal with that. And she just drives away. Yeah. And it's a scene where if she was a more vulnerable character, maybe they break into the van and try to assault her. Yeah. And it doesn't happen because she's an alien. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, this isn't something I have to worry about. Yeah. And then later in the film, it does become something she has to worry about. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think the film is very clear with showing you her perception of herself and how that affects her safety and how she relates to other humans. Yeah. I Yeah, it's just... I thought it was just such a well-done, excellent movie. Yeah, that was what we loved this week in, in our, the house. our pretty little grown lives. Yeah. Um, we just watched the Lucy Hill performance of her new single. Uh, uh, on Ellen. Lie a Little Better. She was on the Ellen show. Um, that was, it was a funny performance. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I saw Taylor Swift... Um, the first time I saw, I've only ever seen Taylor Swift perform once, and it was on the Tonight Show uh, in 2000. I want to say 2009 or 2010, probably 2009. And you know, I happened to be working on the NBC lot at the time, and Leno was doing these uh, summer shows out, out basically outside uh, between the two buildings. Oh, cool! And so Taylor Swift went and performed, and I was there in the crowd, and they filmed it. Uh, and she was out there with like her whole gigantic band mm-hmm. and country bands. It's not you know four people with bass, guitar, drums, uh, whatever. You don't need that many like, fucking people. On no, stage. it's like and so it was the same thing with like. Excuse me, I'm, I'm burpy because I'm drinking a beer, which we can we can do our beer yeah. sponsorships later. Uh, but yeah, Lucy Hale, she comes out and she has like six or seven or eight people in her band. I know she's a banjo and. Like two guitarists and a drummer <laughs> and keyboardist and a backing singer who, who stands very far behind her, so you don't mm-hmm. think that she's the star, you know. Her backing just, singer was the one who counted off for her. Oh, there you go. You know, it's it's so funny when you have a band that's that big and um, you know, I I went to a concert. I went to this the Oregon Music Hall of Fame, uh, which is this organization in in Portland, which inaugurates a few people uh, every year and they raise money for. Uh, youth music education it's a cool group and they're doing pretty interesting uh, things so I went to their ceremony and concert and New Shoes was playing and New Shoes is this Portland band that was a big national yeah a, a, a big national dance band in the, in, in the 80s you know making kind of like Cindy Lauper music and they had so many people on stage three backing singers and a full band and the whole thing and, you know, it's really impressive to me when you see that many people on stage. It feels like a big deal. It feels like a big show. But then the first thing I think about is, like, in the state of the music industry, like, how much money are these people getting yeah, paid? Like, probably not that much. I, I, hope, I hope Lucy Hale is selling some records, man, because that is so many people to take on stage with you. Maybe it's crazy. A, they, maybe New Shoes pulled Lena Dunham. It was just like... Exposure. Oh no! I, I think a lot of the people performing with them were old members of the band from the eighties yeah. who were getting back, and you know, I, I think this, you know, this was a charity concert, right? So I think it's okay for this performance. But yeah, I mean, if they ever go out on tour again, you know, you have to really. 
there was an interesting article on Billboard the other day, which was trying to figure out how much do these bands make at these arena shows. Mm -hmm. And if you're Katy Perry, how much do you make versus your opening act? And the answer is the opening act does not make a whole lot of money because it costs so much to do the setup for these shows yeah. and you have to pay two lighting guys and mm -hmm. the sound guy and you know the guy who pulls the curtain up and all this stuff oh yeah they have uh, an army of people to hand them yeah and so you might actually not make very much you know and your tour bus even so if you're like opening if you're tegan and sarah opening for Katy perry you know you probably barely break even on the damn tour right which seems insane but you know whereas Katy perry walks away every night with you know, hundred thousand dollars or something saying, yeah. something saying, even after it all goes in, you know, and even a band like Wilco, where it's just a bunch of guys playing in a rock band, they don't have any special setup. Like, they still have like guitar techs and all these people who oh, yeah. make a full time living being on the road, and so it's like half their half their money from that show goes right back into the basic cost of putting on the show. Yeah. Um. As far as, you know, I do wonder about uh, Lucy Hale and what her, and the size of her band and what her tour setup will be. Um, assuming that she goes on tour, which I would imagine that's her ultimate goal. Uh, I guess, you know, whenever, when the, the biggest thing that I brought away from watching her on Ellen uh, amongst this sea of musicians is... I didn't take away anything good necessarily because it felt like she, <laughs> she looked she looked like she was she looked like she was um, you know what she looked like Aria who w was like you know I think that I could be a singer and write and write songs um, and uh, uh, I, I'm you know I'm a I'm a poet so I can write lyrics sure uh, and, I, I don't you know like she, talks, I don't know if she's I don't think she wrote these songs. No, I don't. I don't think so either. But it, that, but I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that like it looks like she like was walking by and saw a band practicing in their garage and was like, "Hey, I have some songs. You guys mind if I sing some songs?" And like, "Yeah, sure." And then they're like, "Hey, do you want to sing in our band?" You know, it's just like it felt like, it felt like she was she seemed out of place. Like it seemed like they just sort of plopped her there, and they're like. Sing your lyrics now. Right. While the rest of us real musicians do our real musician things, and get, and we're a lot of great studio musicians who are getting paid really well. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it felt it felt very prefab, and I think the you know I think she has a nice voice, and she has you know sort of look at me. I'm 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 from the south, and I have this very twangy singing voice that you don't pick up at all on Pretty Little Liars. Yeah, we don't want to be we don't want to insult her uh, because I, we I, want her to eventually come on the show. Sure, but I, I think the issue with the song she performed is that it's just very melodically clumsy. The chorus lasts forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not a. It's just it's just a very clumsy piece of writing. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really hook you. It doesn't get you like you know uh, a Taylor Swift or a Miranda Lambert song might. Right. So I I think it's just you know song choice was not so great. And the the other single from the album I also. Just didn't feel like it was uh, the highest caliber of the Nashville scene. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where she did. She probably lives in L.A. I'm sure she probably doesn't live in the South. Oh, we, we did look her up, and she is from Memphis. 
So, so she has that authentic country country cred. Her roots, I, you know, her roots I, are there. I, it is funny because a lot of people on the show yeah. sing, and we've seen we saw Janelle sing on the show. Mm-hmm. As Hannah, as Hannah said, we get it, Mona. <laughs> sing. So there's a lot of people on the show who have singing voices and have a background in musical theater. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, but you know, I give her credit for for going forward and making a record and everything. I, I wish yeah. I I wish I liked it more. I wish the songs that's, were better. That's a I agree. I, I, I commend the effort, and uh, we're behind you. We want you to succeed. Right. Um, one last thing before we go. I Last week, um, I made some... Uh, I, I did not have the correct facts on the plots of the Pretty Little Liars books, which I rectified by reading the plots summaries on Wikipedia this week. Um, always, always accurate. So, uh, if you've made it this far in the podcast, there's going to be some heavy spoilers right now, uh, because I want because I want to blow your minds with the, the differences. First of all, uh, in the books, uh, Mona is the first A. The second A, though, is Allie, uh, but it's Allie because Allie has a twin sister named Courtney who was pretending to be Allie when the girls were befriending her all the time that they were growing up together. So who they thought was Allie was actually Courtney, and A is the real Allie who was in Radley and is a a psychopath, a murderous psychopath who just, like, murders people. Which seems like a pretty solid route for the show to take yeah. because it gives you a big bad who has a motive and feels important and it lets them introduce a new character without you know it feeling stupid or shoehorned and we've talked before about the twin motif there is a lot yeah, yeah. there's been a lot and whether it's the dolls or the story Allie tells about the twins or people being sort of molded into like Hannah being molded into Allie's image or Jenna and Sydney, for some reason, dressing the same. Right, right. So there's a lot of there's been a lot of hints that that's what's going to happen, yeah. and it's it's you know it might be the only thing that really makes sense because otherwise I agree. we you know we've talked about this a lot where it's like why is Allie blowing up her life mm-hmm. like well who's the real enemy what's the point of all this you know is it really just the the um, you know these 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 College guys who are videotaping everybody, you yeah. know the the what's the what were the what was the the NAT club? NAT club, like that's the big bad. No, they're yeah. they're that's not that's not the end game villain of this show. I clearly. guess though, if this if this was something of a solution, then at this point, um, you'd think that Allie would be aware of the fact that she had a sister. Um, maybe Bethany Young is her sister. That that could very well be. Um, and or maybe Allie, maybe. I mean, we're seeing, maybe we're seeing Courtney right now as Allie, and the real Allie is the, it's following the books exactly, and the real Allie is off being a crazy person. Or maybe Bethany Young was, Bethany Young was Allie. Right. Growing up, and right. now, and they were twins, which is why they were, they looked alike so much, which is why anyone could mistake the body, the, their bodies. For the same. For the same. Right. Um, or it could just be a, thir- it could just be another false path and we'll get into the we'll find out that there are two alleys out there but also Allie and um cc mm-hmm. cc you know that's another instance where you have sort of this replication 
Yeah. They're, they're so inseparable that they're, you know, identical. So, yeah, I think it's sort of the, the direction that the show is heading is that there has to be another crazy blonde out there. Um, another thing, uh, and this is, this might make all of you shippers out there, all of you sp- spoby shippers. Spoby? Spoby. Um, uh, in the books, Toby commits suicide. That's so brutal. Yeah. But he doesn't get with Spencer in the books. No, he doesn't. You know, uh, So he's safe. He's right. safe in the show. Spencer loses her virginity to Ren. Um, they have a multiple book affair after, in the first book, Melissa catches Spencer almost losing her V-card to Ren. Eventually she does. Um, and then I don't know who she dates after that. Someone that she meets in college, maybe, or she meets when she goes to visit a college that she's going to. Uh, Aria... Uh, this is something that I approve of. Arya, uh, I think Fitz goes to jail because of his relationship with Arya, and Arya eventually uh, just dates a bunch of other boys. Um, and Hannah uh, eventually gets with Mike, with Mike Mon- Michelangelo Montgomery. Yeah, not with not with Caleb. Not with I don't think I don't even know if Caleb exists in the books. Yeah, they had to come up with a a cool hacker character. For television. Brooding and haunted. He's real haunted. Yeah. Yeah. Haunted hacker. Haunted with a capital A. Well, now, now I'm really excited to see what the, where the rest of season five goes. Yeah. Now that we have a little more context for the, for the story. This, it doesn't really lend any credence to our, our uh, Jason theory. No. Um, but I think it's a really good theory, and I don't want to let it go. Just like, just like I don't want to say that I don't think Mona's dead. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to let it go. Uh, poor Mona. Well, she's not dead on, on Dancing with the Stars. She's fully she's, alive she's, and thriving. She's limber. She's, she's in the peak of health. And she's probably fucking her, her dance partner, I would imagine. You, well, you, let's, let's, uh, you know, there can be a uh, sequel to Under the Skin. can explore this in figurative science fiction, <laughs> science fiction motifs. I, I, oh, what I, is truth? What is reality? <laughs> what is Dancing with the Stars? Um, so I think that's it. Uh, we throughout the course of this podcast, I was drinking a. Uh, it was actually a special beer brewed for the Timbers called the um, Yellow and Gold, or Gold, or Yellow and Gold, Green and Green and Gold. I think Green and Gold. Green and Black. Green and Yellow. I it's, don't. I actually. It's, don't it's, know. it's a. It's a. It's a I don't think it was called a Kolsch. It's like a it's a Kolsch like beer from uh, Widmer, uh, and it was it was it was all right. Um, at Widmer, if you want to sponsor our podcast, uh, this episode of Pretty Little Liar or Pretty Little Grown Men was brought to you by Widmer. And uh, I was drinking a gigantic. I think it was a gigantic IPA. We got a growler the other day. Oh, I like gigantic. Uh, it was really good. It was very had a nice. I like beers with like a nice wheat feel. You feel like you're chomping into a loaf of bread a little bit. Um, and it wasn't, you know, a nice hop character, but not not overwhelmingly bitter. So very enjoyable. Uh, and also I was eating hummus from a local Oregon hummus. So I recommend eating a lot of that. In Lo- your, local. You know. Eating local. Any, yeah, eating local, eating hummus. It's delicious. <laughs> I, I made some pad thai for, for dinner with ingredients from Zupan's. Uh, I don't know if there are Zupans outside of Oregon. I don't think there's Zupans outside of Portland. Oh. I think it's just our own little uh, Bizarro World Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. Because New Seasons, 
which is the other uh, Pacific Northwest Bizarro Whole Foods, mm-hmm. is actually, there's a bunch of them. But Zupans, I think, is just in Portland. Yeah, so if Zupans or New Seasons would like to sponsor this podcast, you're more than welcome. Or, or would like to give us a discount on groceries, because that shit is expensive. I know. We really like going to your stores, but it's so expensive. Uh, I, I actually tweeted at New Seasons, because they don't open <laughs> until 8 o'clock. Uh-huh. Fucking 8 o'clock, which... At if, night. No, in, in the morning. Okay. I was going to say, that's kind of awkward. Yeah. It's You're missing out on... Only pink, midnight pink. hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because if I'm driving to work, I want to stop and sometimes if I get a coffee or I want to get a bagel because they have Bowery bagels, which... Uh, Boiled. Delicious. Yeah, they're really delicious and they've 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 taken over... There used to be this bagel shop in, in Portland called Kettleman's, which had the most delicious bagels and then Einstein Brothers bought it out. Oh. Which was just like a, it's like a fucking nightmare. Why would Einstein Brothers fucking sucks? And then to see all the Kettleman stores, and they had great bagel sandwiches too. Oh, yeah, delicious! And see all the Kettleman stores sort of like mutate overnight into Einstein Brothers. So Bowery, Bowery is now uh, the premier uh, Portland bagel shop, and they have really good bagels, and they they sell them at uh, New Seasons. Um, but they don't open until eight o'clock. So it's like you show up at like a quarter to quarter to eight and you're like i gotta get to work i really wanted this bagel but i guess i can't because new seasons opens at eight fucking o'clock it's like it's like the the hipster hipster whole foods because hipsters don't like to get up yeah they don't get up before (laughs) yeah they don't have have real jobs so no one is at the office at eight o'clock so i tweeted at them and and they 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 asked me which stores i go to Uh and i think that they might legitimately start changing their hours that would be amazing i know right Oh, really? If you didn't hear that, Hillary We're changing says, things. Hillary says the new seasons near her office opens five minutes early because they understand some people will work, work big boy jobs. Yeah. We're changing the world through social media. If you dream it, if you dream it, you can be it. <laughs> you can tweet it. <laughs> yeah. Tweet it. Complete it. Well, thanks for being with us again. Um, we are making our way through this off-season uh, two more months until there is a new Pretty Little Liars episode for us to talk about. <laughs> uh, please star us on iTunes if you like. Um, let us know what we should chat about. We're on Twitter. We're on rockblog.com. And, uh, well, uh, you know, we'll actually, um, I think the one thing that we've been avoiding is watching uh, an old episode. Um, and we're not, and we'll just tell you all this right now. We're not going to like spend uh, an hour recapping an episode. That's stupid. Um, a, a previous episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we we talk about it, but we don't we don't like we, you know we don't go minute by minute saying you know basically just like retelling the episode. Right. You we, you've seen the episode. We're here to we're here to discuss and analyze and process our feelings. But if you want us to. Uh, talk about a specific episode. You should tell us what that specific episode is. Don't just say old episodes or season one episodes. Like, if you have a favorite episode, tell us what that episode is, and you we know, will watch it. We'll watch it. That's a good idea. Yeah, I'm down. Cool. Well, until next time, uh, act normal, bitches.